Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Last week, we used the Torah portion of the week, Akav, as a jumping off place, and we went over the template from there. Again, it went back to the fiery serpents and the scorpions, which, as it turns out, are also one of the, the plagues. It's they, they fall under the category of the plague of wild beasts, uh, the, the mixture of beasts, and we'll talk about the mixture of beasts today if we get that far. But before we do this week's Torah portion... I wanted to uh, reiterate for you the, the 10 steps of a siege. And if you're going to conquer a nation, if you're going to conquer a city, the Torah describes 10 steps that can be taken. Now, do these have to occur in chronological order? No, they don't. Uh, what we have them is in the order of the Exodus. Because what we're doing is we're going to take these 10 steps described as the wars of kings, and then we're going to look at the 10 plagues and see how one is teaching you about the other, how that particular siege tactic is reflected in a particular plague. So by studying the template of the first Exodus, as we read the book of Revelation, now we'll have a, a better way of understanding the siege tactics that John is describing in the book of Revelation, and we'll have a context for them. We'll be able to go back, not just to the, the 10 plagues, but we'll actually be able to, to get a clearer picture of what that might look like, as we say, in real life. You know, how, how would that look to us now in our generation? Because I think every generation needs to prepare with this list. Every generation needs to prepare for a siege. And so uh, here's the comparison, and I'll just run through it really quick before we go to part two. The first Tactic is to attack sources of fresh water for the population that you're trying to destroy or take captive. And that's going to correspond to the plague of blood because, of course, the blood was poured out on the, the river and the springs and so forth. The second step is the force that is besieging will use sound. And it will use sound to frighten and to confuse. And this is actually one of the tactics of the tzila, tzila, and we might call this the hell bug, the bug that comes flying out of Abaddon. We know that there's a history of this bug, that Moses was paired with the work of this bug. This bug was supposed to go before Moses and the Israelites and to conquer the Canaanite kings. We also know that it reappeared in the time of Joshua, but it's not a natural bug. It's not like a real bug. It's, it's a supernatural bug. That's why it comes out of Abaddon. And so John is going to have trouble describing this bug. He's going to say, well, it's kind of like a locust, but it's kind of like a serpent, but it's kind of like a scorpion, but it's kind of like a horse, but it's kind of like a man, but it has a woman's hair. He's trying to tell you that I don't really have the words to tell you what I'm seeing, but this is the appearance of it. And of course, all of those pieces of description are going to help us. But this besieging force is going to use sound. The point, again, being to frighten and confuse, this is the job of the hell bug. The, the hell bugs of Abaddon, 
they they first try to frighten and confuse you, and then they cut off the root and the fruit. And and I'm going to give you a reference for that if that sounds brand new to you. It doesn't have to. I'll give you a reference for a couple of programs we did back in 2018 where we described this hell bug in more detail so that it begins to make a little bit more sense. So uh, second step, use sound. And for the Israelites, this was in the form of a shofar. Remember when they besieged Jericho, they marched around the city and they blew shofars, they blew trumpets. Well, first they had cut off the fresh water source. They they surrounded the city so that the Jerichoites could not get fresh water from the Jordan, which was just right there. And then they start to use the shofar just you know day after day for seven days, which begins to frighten and confuse them because with each sound of the shofar, they don't know if that's the attack or not. And so sound typically when Jerusalem was being besieged, I believe by Nebuchadnezzar, no, I think it was Assyria that time, they were taunting. They would even bring in people who could speak Hebrew to taunt them and to try to, to talk them into surrendering. So the, the words will be used. The, the words will be dropped in there. It might be sound. In modern times, we know that if they're trying to lay siege to a particular building or neighborhood, often they'll use really loud rock music 24-7 just to annoy and, and drive them crazy in there. I believe that was Noriega that they used that tactic on. Colonel Farley pointed out in modern times, they might drop leaflets into a community by air and warning them that the attack is coming. You need to get out of here. The attack is coming. You need to surrender. You need to lay down your arms. That's a that's perfectly modern tactic because it may not be the actual sound, but the words themselves will be used to warn of what's coming. The plague that corresponds to that is going to be the frogs the frogs, the sound of the frogs. And and that's where we'll pick up this week when we start in the plagues is the sound of the frogs. The third tactic is to send a hail of arrows to pierce the body. And these are not necessarily targeted actions. In other words, and you've seen these old war movies where you've got the, the melee units up front who are more into the hand-to-hand combat, but then you'll have the archers standing behind them. And they will just unleash a hail of arrows onto the enemy or into the city, and they'll just fall where they will. They're, they're not taking actual aim. They're just aiming in general. And this can produce, again, fear, fear and confusion, the anticipation of an act that's coming. Not only that, I mean, it is going to pierce some people, and it will seem to me be maybe random because you know it's not targeted, but all of a sudden it's going to feel like it's random. Like, why me? Why did it hit me? Why did it pierce me? And this is going to be compared to the plague of lice, or some translations will say gnats. Doesn't really matter. They're teeny tiny little insects that bite you. But again, this is not the main attack. The fourth is going to be the foreign mercenaries. And again, these these are shock troops. They're they're going to make some attacks, but they're for sale. The the only investment they have in this battle is what they're going to be paid for it. So they'll be a little less uh, motivated than the large army attack that comes with number eight. But they can be frightening because they're a mixture. They're they're foreign. Think of like uh, foreign idols 
you were warned about idols that your fathers did not know. They were they were from foreign places. So there will be an incursion of foreign things and mixed things, and that will correspond to the plague of the wild beasts. Next, you'll have the seizing of captives. If anybody's wandering around in the wrong place, they'll just get snatched up. This will correspond to the pestilence. Then the next step would be burning, trying to burn the city. And this could also occur with, say, arrows. You might set things on fire by lobbing arrows. You might also use the catapult, the burning catapult missiles. Regardless, you're trying to set fire to things. And so that's going to correspond to the plague of boils. Number seven is going to be, you know, the heavy bombardment. Um, These are the big missiles. These are the big bombs. This is the heavy artillery. These are the tanks. This is, this is, you know, worse than mortar fire, right? This is the heavy stuff. This is artillery. And it corresponds to hail, which scripture describes as equal to all the plagues. So apparently the, the fear that is instilled by heavy bombardment, by artillery, by tanks, by big bombs, bunker buster bombs, those sorts of things, the fear that is instilled by this heavy bombardment is equal to the fear you would get with all the plagues. And I can see how that would be. Number eight, finally, your large army attack. Uh, you're going to go hand-to-hand combat. And you'll probably be overrun because they're going to throw the bulk of their army at you. This will correspond to the plague of locusts. Number nine is imprisonment. You'll be locked up. You might be locked up within the city itself. This is going to be compared to a plague of darkness because the experience of those inside the city is going to be different from the experience of those outside the city. Number 10 will be the execution of the leaders. And that will correspond to the plague of the firstborn. Okay, so that's just a review from last week to make sure we're all remembering the tactics as we get into this week's Torah portion, which is re'eh, re'eh, which means see, see. And it really does give us the clue. It helps us understand what's happening with these plagues, because in all of these plagues, the one thread, and this is worth writing down. I think it just occurred to me. It's worth writing down. I don't always say that, but I think this is worth writing down. The thread that's running through all 10 plagues is it's trying to expose, in some cases, or to deepen the riff between the generations. The riff between the generations. Why do I say that? Because it just occurred to me something I read a while back. Can't give you the source. Might be Midrash, might be Rashi. I don't know. But when it it was a commentary on the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, and they said prior to that night, of course, by then the Egyptians know when Moses says it is going to happen, it's not a question. If Moses said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. The firstborn of the land of Egypt began to go into a panic, and they began to go to their fathers and beg their fathers to go to Pharaoh. And have him change his mind, go to Pharaoh and and talk him into letting these people go because it's going to cost me my life. And the, the fathers would not intercede for their sons. They were willing to let their sons die. And therefore, prior to the plague of the firstborn, many of the firstborn sons of Egypt killed their fathers. 
they fell upon, they attacked their fathers for failing to protect them from Pharaoh. And then the plague of the firstborn. But it's, we don't know whether that's true or not. It makes perfect sense, though. I mean, if I were a firstborn, I I would be going to my parents and saying, you need to go talk to somebody because I'm going to die tonight. And there was a, what they pointed out was there was a real disconnect between the two generations because the older generation would not go and stop Pharaoh. And so this week's Torah portion, Re'eh, gives us a clue. It gives us the thread that's running through these 10 plagues is that there is a disconnect between the two generations, that there is a generation more than any other that is willing to sacrifice their children in the fire to Molech. So Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31 says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations, which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Remember, this was called the cult of Molech. And to varying degrees, what would happen, and this happened especially in the valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem, is with this God, they it would depend. Some they would just kind of like symbolically cross the child from one side to the other of the idol to the most extreme, where they would literally throw their sons and daughters into a fire that was built inside this idol. Probably to the same degree today, when we look at how parents are sacrificing their sons and daughters in the fire. How are they doing that? Well, what does an idol do? It does what you want. That's why you go worship an idol. That's why you pray to an idol. It it stands in the place of Adonai who created you, but you don't want to go to him because you know in your heart that what you're asking, he may not grant you. And you don't want to hear any reason why you might not be granted that. Simply because you want it, you believe you're entitled to it, and you'll go to any lengths to obtain it. If his word says, well, you know, there will be a period of trials and tribulations, and you say, I don't want that. What does the the woman say? I will not sit a widow. No, I will not suffer. And so a people who are unwilling to suffer, they will turn to an idol who will guarantee them a free ride somewhere without suffering, without pain, without sacrifice, without tight spots that are part of bringing you to perfection in your faith. And so these parents who are worshiping Molech, they are so dead set, pun intended, on getting their way that they are willing to sacrifice their children for their goals. If they want wealth, then they will leave their sons and daughters unattended unsupervised, undirected while they go and they pursue wealth. They will leave them in the, in the hands of another God. They will leave them in the fire. What if they're, they're, they want fame and fortune? Well, again, there will be a disconnect most likely between them and their sons and their daughters because they will leave their sons and daughters in the fire to be raised by others or to practically raise themselves. What about those who They've bought into doctrines where somehow discipline is bad. Well, that's not what scripture says about discipline for your children. So they won't discipline their children. Like remember the high priest Ailey, he wouldn't discipline his children and they died a hideous death. And so did he. 
because it's not a bad thing to discipline your children. And so when you don't discipline your children, you leave them to the fire. It's a it's a disconnect between the two generations where this generation is willing to sacrifice for the next generation. And then our post-text, uh, I just have a little collection here from Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 18, because what we want to do is identify the false prophet in Revelation. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning what she spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods. Right? So idolatry is associated with the false prophet. You could see that in the text, the false prophet. He's not just somebody who's predicting things that don't come true. He is also someone who entices you to go after other gods and to serve other gods, which like we said, in the end is nothing more than serving your own will. It's deciding I will serve anything other than the one who created me and the only one who has the right to rule over me. And instead of letting his word guide us, we either create different words for guidance or we follow the words of others who have led us astray in terms of the words. And that's the clue that says, for they even burn sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And what it does is it sacrifices the generations coming after so that that generation can advance their egotistical motives. I think you can see where this is going. So the second plague, we've already gone through the, the muddy, bloody puddles, right? We've, we've had the blood in the water, the bloody words, and that takes us to the plague of frogs. And remember, the plague of frogs corresponds to the sound of the battle shofar, which is intended to frighten and to confuse. It frightens and it confuses. And this is, again, the work of Abaddon or destruction. A frog is sephardea in Hebrew. You hear tzipur for bird and dea, which is knowledge. So the Hebrew word for frog means bird of knowledge. And sometimes frogs sing and it's very pleasant. It's like a shofar. If, if you're in a state of obedience, if you're gathering at the feast because the shofar has called you, it can be a very pleasant sound. It can be an inspiring sound. But there's also a very unpleasant sound. If you ever lived out far enough out in the country and you had a pond somewhere around or a creek, you've heard bullfrogs competing and it's extremely unpleasant. In the early spring, if you hear a frog, you know that summer is coming and that's the sound of the frog. Summer is the season of war for kings. So as the second plague, you get the idea that the sound of battle, you can start to hear the sound of battle. And that sound of battle can either be a comfort, because if you know the sound of the shofar, you're not really afraid of the battles that are going to come because you know which side you're on. Revelation 8.2 gives an example. It says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Some people are going to hear those trumpets and it's going to inspire fear and dread and confusion. Other people, whether they literally hear them or not, they are going to be comforted 
by the shofars of the seven feasts, because it's gathering them in a good way. Instead of gathering the kings of the earth for destruction, instead, there's it's like a harbinger that salvation is coming, deliverance is coming. And here's what Revelation 16, 13 says about the frogs. And this is a good place maybe to take some notes on the big three liars, because this passage describes the big three liars as frogs. It says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So they're doing exactly what this second tactic is designed to do. It's going to um, basically publish the news that war is coming. And in this case, (coughs) excuse me, the big three are sending out three unclean spirits like frogs, spirits of demons. (coughs) And we know that, of course, the, the magicians in Egypt could also produce frogs by sorcery. In this case, again, remember what we said about the Euphrates River being dried up in order to lure the kings of the east over to destroy them. Just like Pharaoh was lured into the Sea of Reeds to destroy him so that he would gather his army together and pursue. And so the entire, what was left of the entire army could be destroyed. And so in this case, you've got the serpent, the beast, and the false prophet. These lies are going to call and gather to battle, just like a shofar. But it's going to be calling people in who are destined for destruction. And I think the governments of this earth, because it it specifies, it says, the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. I think the governments of the world right now are being gathered, and it might be through three primary lies, it might be one lie. And the answer might be yes. It might be one lie with three expressions. Uh, but it, it will be powerful enough for them to agree upon it. Now, here's the, the pattern. When we look at the serpent, the beast, and the false prophet, we can be very specific with the the serpent, the beast, and the false prophet. Uh, The serpent from the beginning has been a deceiver. The serpent from the beginning uh, has been the father of lies. And we know that the serpent is the one who has the authority. Remember in Revelation, the serpent gives his authority to the beast to act. So the beast is not really aroused without the work of the serpent. So the serpent, he formulates the lie, and then it's passed along to the beast. That's why I think the three lies might be one lie. 
we know the beast is formed of the human soul. But it's the human soul apart from the discipline and the truth of the Holy Spirit, which is based on it is written. The human soul functions based on I think I feel I want, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. And so the serpent as a deceiver will appeal to one or a collection of those things, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. Why did Eve eat the fruit? She had an appetite for it. She had an intellect that helped her formulate a good reason to take that which was written, to twist it, and make it into a good thing. Well, we will be like God. Well, aren't we made in the image of God? It's very subtle. But it's not the truth. The truth is he told you not to. Yes, you are in his image, but he told you not to. So we have to know where we are most vulnerable in our appetites. We have to know where we are the most vulnerable in our desires, in our emotions, and in our thought process, because those are the vulnerable vulnerable places that the serpent will wiggle in there. He won't speak to a place where you're strong, where you've got a lot of self-discipline. The serpent will come to you with deceiving words in the places where you are weak. If you have a weakness in your appetite, if you have weakness in the way that you put thoughts together, if you have weakness in your emotions, if you often find yourself at the mercy of your emotions, that's exactly where he will attack. And by attacking your emotions, rather than demanding that your emotions line up with it is written, the serpent will convince you it's okay to act upon I feel, even when what you're feeling is different than that which is written. Now you say, but I can't help how I feel. Maybe not in the beginning, but this is what the discipline of the soul is about over time. Maybe you can't control how you feel, but you can control how you react to it so that you don't sin. So the, the vulnerability there is that authority, that deception, that lie is passed off to the beastly soul. And until we learn to respond to these temptations with it is written instead of I think I feel I want, then we will continue to be subject to the deceptions. And then the third entity here is the false prophet. Well, we just looked at the context for the false prophet. It's somebody who is going to lead you astray. And it's thought that the false prophet is one who is intentionally speaking a word or performing a sign to lead you away from the Torah. And this is going to be the basis. This, this is going to be the team that we need to be able to recognize. And we have some information about. The false prophet. Uh, 
But as we go through these plagues, watch how they'll build on the, the previous ones. They will build on the previous ones. So what I wanted to do was to get into the head of, of John as he's having this revelation. And it says here, Mishneh Torah 9, it might be 8. You might want to check both 8 and 9, because sometimes I do numbers wrong. But this is a commentary on the Torah portion this week, which talks about the false prophet who's able to do great signs and wonders. And it clarifies for us, again, that a false prophet is not necessarily just one who performs a sign or a wonder by a different power other than a holy power. Uh, he's not just one that predicts something that doesn't come to pass. It was given to us what the problem is with this false prophet. And it explains why he works so well with the serpent and the beast. It says, therefore, if a prophet arises and performs great signs and wonders and seeks to contradict the prophecy of Moses, our teacher, we do not heed him. We do not listen to him. And we know clearly that those signs were performed with trickery and magic. For the prophecy of Moses, our teacher, is not based on the signs he performed in order that we could compare this sign to another prophet's sign. Rather, we saw with our eyes and heard with our ears like Moses heard. In other words, we see, right? We see the word and we hear it, which means we obey it. To hear it is to obey it. So when you've come to an understanding of the scripture, you see it with your eyes and you hear it with your ears. You begin to learn how to obey it. And it says, what is this false prophet similar to? To witnesses that testify to a man concerning something that he saw with his own eyes, but they claim to have seen something different than what he saw. And so he does not listen to them but rather knows with certainty that these are false witnesses. Therefore, the Torah states that even if the signs and wonders come true, you shall not heed the words of this prophet. And that's in Deuteronomy 13.4. As behold, this false prophet is coming with signs and wonders to contradict something that you have seen with your own eyes. And since we only believe in wonders because of the commandments that Moses commanded us, how can we accept this sign that is being brought to contradict the prophecy of Moses that we saw and heard? So it's, again, it's helping us understand the context of what John would have in his background as he describes the false prophet to us. He has a whole body of, of Jewish learning and understanding behind him. Probably out of the 12 disciples, John was the most Torah educated. If he was a Kohen, as we believe he was, probably maybe Matthew had a, a good secular education. He was good with numbers. But probably John would have been the one more well-versed in the Jewish understanding of things. And this explanation this elaboration on the Torah portion of a false prophet is extremely valuable 
because John is, is describing the false prophet to us and the lies of the false prophet, he's giving it a context, not just in the Torah, but he's helping us today to identify a false prophet. If somebody comes, even if they're doing signs and wonders, but if they're telling us that what we have seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears, and that is the living word of Elohim, if he's teaching you something different than that, he is a false prophet. He has taken the lie of the serpent and the beast, and he is testifying to it. So not only is he a false prophet, he is a false witness. And so when people read the word of Adonai, some believe it and do it. Some might read it and teach that it's okay not to do it. That's a false prophet. That's a false witness. And then it goes on. It says it's clear and it's explicit in the Torah that the Torah is a commandment and that it stands forever and ever. It does not allow for change, nor subtraction, nor addition. As it states in Deuteronomy 13:1, all this word which I command you, it shall it shall you observe and do. You shall not add thereto nor diminish from it. And it states in Deuteronomy 29, 28, what is revealed is for us, and watch this, and for our children forever to carry out all the words of this Torah. Right here, there's that connection. Us and our children, the present generation and its children, and then their children, and then their children. When you pass your children to the fire, you have disconnected yourself from the next generation. You have disconnected them from the words of the Torah. He says, behold, you have learned that we are commanded to fulfill all the Torah's directives forever. And so too, it states in Leviticus 23, 14, it is an everlasting statute for all your generations. There's our generational motive. And it states, Deuteronomy 30, 12, it is not in the heavens. Behold, you have learned that from now on, a prophet is not allowed to add a new precept to the Torah. Therefore, if a person will arise either from the nations or from Israel and perform a sign or wonder and say that God sent him to add a commandment or to subtract a commandment, or to explain one of the commandments in a manner which is different than what we heard from Moses, or if he says that those commandments commanded to the Jews are not forever and for all generations, but rather were only for that time, behold, he is a false prophet. As behold, he came to contradict the prophecy of Moses. His death penalty is by strangulation because he intentionally spoke in God's name that which God did not command him. As he, may his name be blessed, commanded Moses that this commandment is for us and for our children forever and that God is not man, that he lies. So here they're saying this, this false prophet is one that adds to or takes away from the written word. I would say um, in terms of how does it get passed to the next generation? Well, imagine a generation where we tell our children, well, yeah, it is written, but you're not held to that. Yes, it is written, but you know, it, it's not really valid anymore. 
what are you trying to do? You're trying to disconnect successive generations from the truth. And therefore, we would be false prophets. But it also says it's done intentionally. I would say this is usually done unintentionally, presumptuously, which is covered in the Torah too. It says if he he speaks presumptuously in my name, and I didn't tell him, there's some sin there. But worse would be somebody who knows that the word stands forever and then intentionally spoke something that he was not commanded, something that is not based on it is written. And they say this is why the death penalty of strangulation is because he used his mouth. He used his breath as a false prophet, as a false witness. And so he's strangled. All right. So that's a little grim. Yes, that's a little grim. But it at least gives us context for what we're looking for in a false prophet. We don't have to, to look for somebody necessarily that's, you know, calling down fire, making frogs come out of the river infesting us with lice or whatever. We don't necessarily have to look for that. Just look for somebody who tells you that it's okay not to obey Adonai, that it's just fine if you don't do that. That's a false prophet and that's a false witness. This is the third that uh, it just is very succinct. This is from Sanhedrin 89a section 15. It says the Mishnah lists among those liable to be executed as a false prophet as one who prophesies that which he did not hear, right? So when you prophesy that which you did not hear, it's a lie. What is the Shema? Hear, O Israel. What is it referring to? The Torah. Hear the Torah. Well, if you prophesy that which you did not hear, you're not prophesying the Torah. Ha'azinu. When we get down to the end of the Torah, ha'azinu, give ear. Oh, heavens, it's, it's getting into the song of Moses, which is going to be sung at the end of days. If you're prophesying apart from the written word, then it's a lie. You are a false prophet. And so the, the age of the three liars is a period of rampant lying. How can it become so rampant? A lie can only move so fast, right? The rise of mass media. Digital communication has enabled the proliferation of lies, especially intentional lies, in ways we couldn't have imagined two generations ago when you had to wait for the newspaper to find out what the news was. Now, both the truth and the lie can be transmitted in a second. Lies originate with the serpent, the father of lies. They are aimed at the beast's vulnerable essence appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, the commercials on television, the ads on the websites that you're using can be just as full of lies as the actual content. I can't tell you even trying to open up a news web page anymore, what I would consider to be pornography is plastered on there as an ad. It's getting harder and harder to maneuver your way through the the tidal wave of words without being snagged in our vulnerable places, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. So we've got the three liars. We have the the serpent who originates the lie. We have the beast who perpetuates the lie, falls for it, and then perpetuates it. And then it will be verified by false witnesses. Like it says, people who have no firsthand knowledge or hearing of the 
the word because what are they doing? They're prophesying lies. You cannot hear a lie the same way that you hear the word. They're two different things. There's truth and there's a lie. And it's it's so smeared up right now in the media, you don't know who to believe anymore. And just wait till AI starts recreating people you think you know, and that's not even them. They can create another one. They can create an image of that person. They can put words in the mouth of that person, and it will sound just like that person. So there's all sorts of possibilities in terms of the three liars and the the frogs being used to gather. And you say, well, how can I guard myself against that? Again, if you don't know it is written, and if you are not teaching yourself to conduct your life based on it is written, not I think I feel I want, you could fall prey to the three liars. That's not a great thought to have. Okay, the next plague, it doesn't look like we'll get very far today. Uh, We'll pick up a couple of plagues, but maybe have to finish out next week. The third plague is lice or gnats. Uh, It depends on your translation. Either way, it's a teeny tiny insect that bites your skin and in some cases gets under your skin. And you may not even see them. You might really have to look to see them. One place I grew up, there was a particular kind of gnat. They called them noceums because they'd bite you and you couldn't see them. Remember, this is correlated to the, the, the light hail of arrows. It's a, it's a ranged weapon. So little light missiles, and their goal is to pierce the body and, again, to invoke fear and anxiety. That seems to be the common thread of a siege, no matter what you're doing. If you run out of water, there's fear and anxiety. If you're hearing frightful sounds and you can't tell the truth from a lie anymore, there's fear and there's anxiety. So again, with these arrows, as they they launch them, they could fall randomly, but they'll get under your skin. And I've never seen so many people that let things get under their skin as right now. What are these arrows? Remember the the Shoresh or the root of Torah is Yara, which means to shoot as with an arrow. And what we'll find is that as the arrows of truth go out, it's going to torment a lot of people. It's going to cause a lot of fear and anxiety. It gets under their skin because they don't. They want to cancel you. They want to delete you. They don't want to hear the words. Because remember, that's, that's what the word does. It divides between the truth and a lie. Because the goal of the serpent and the beast and the false prophet is to perpetuate your confusion. They don't want the word to get under your skin and to bring you to repentance. The father wants the word to get under your skin and bring you to repentance so that he can heal you. And an arrow in Hebrew is chetzi, chetzi, which means to divide, to divide in half. And that's what the word does. It rightly divides the word of truth. And so for those who are walking in wickedness, the word itself will bring anxiety because 
they don't want to repent. Now, if they do want to repent, that anxiety is good. It will bring them to a place of repentance. We all had to experience anxiety to acknowledge that we were sinners and in need of salvation. But we've got a generation that never wants to admit that they've sinned. They don't even know what sin is. They think they get to decide what sin is when they're just taking the place of Adonai and they're, they're their own idol. Their will determines what a sin is, what a transgression is. No, the word is eternal. It never changes. Adonai is not a liar. His word is always truthful. And so when they hear the word being spoken, it will bring them fear and anxiety. And that's all I hear anymore is like, well, that just triggers me. It triggers you? What's triggering you? So many times what's triggering people is the truth. And because they don't want to change, because they don't want to repent, because they don't want to worship the one only Elohim, they want to be their own Elohim, it causes them a lot of anxiety and they have to shut it down. And so we've got a cancel culture. If, if you're not talking the way I like, that makes me feel good, then I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to block you. I'm going to delete you. Now, some people need to be blocked and deleted because they're definitely sending out twisted arrows. Not well thought out, but dividing the word of truth is important. And if we're feeling anxiety, that's a self-check we can do is, okay, let me make sure it's not the word itself that has gotten under my skin, that the spirit might be contending with me to change something. Maybe there's something in his word I need to start doing or doing better or doing consistently, or maybe there's something in his word I need to stop doing that. He doesn't want me doing that. He said, don't do that. So I need to stop doing that. I need to start disciplining myself. That's called repentance. Wanting to say, I'm sorry, I did it my way. And please show me how to do it your way. The Lysnats, whatever we decide they were, the magicians of Pharaoh tell him that this is the finger of God. And remember, they were produced from the dust, the dust. And they said, this is the finger of God, which is kind of an odd statement. Uh, they say the magicians could not produce it because a demon has no power over a creature smaller than a grain of barley. And so basically, I think what they're saying is what the magicians were doing and trying to replicate Moses' miracles, they were using demonic forces to create the illusion that there were frogs, that there was, you know, that they could turn the water into blood. So what you call a magician is an illusionist. Did they actually do it? It might have simply been an illusion. People might have simply seen that because they would not repent. Who knows? It is important, though, to understand the finger of God is what wrote the 10 words. That encounter we had at Mount Sinai where we said, we will do and we will hear. We will be a, a faithful witness. Well, obedience is going to be very important if we don't want to find ourselves in a torment, if we don't want to find ourselves in a state of perpetual fear and anxiety. And so the 10 words can pierce us like nothing else can. It's the finger of God. The, the adversary can't bring us to repentance like his finger can because his words are truth. And there's, there's no deviating from that truth. So this would be a plague that would be accompanied by much anxiety. And it, it could also be, even in the believers, those who are trying to walk righteously, we might become anxious too when we look around and we see the lack of truth in the world. 
but we don't have to be anxious. But those who refuse to repent, they're going to experience this infestation of anxiety. And it's very subtle, may not even see it when it goes in, but you will be able to observe its effects. And what people tend to do once it gets under their skin, once it produces that anxiety, they tend to turn to things like drugs or obsessive behaviors. You might take drugs, you might be addicted to alcohol, but what you're trying to do is to numb the power of the word that's pointing out your sin. I don't want to feel bad about myself, but I I don't want it bad enough that I would change what I'm doing, that I would repent. Well, if you don't want to repent, take drugs. If you don't want to repent, drink alcohol. If you don't want to repent, keep yourself busy playing games or shopping obsessively. You can find any sort of drug to get your mind off of the fact that you need to respond to it as written. And Revelation 19.9 says, uh, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The true words of God. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.